Um, hello, everyone, and thank you so much to um, thank you so much for coming to from he said she said to me too successes and shortcomings in the law of sexual harassment. I'm Kendall Burchard, and I'm the vice president of Virginia Law Women. I wanted to thank the Student Bar Association, Women of Color, and Feminist Legal Forum for making this event possible, and we're excited that you're all here today. Uh, this is the first event of Diversity Week, and Diversity Week and the Diversity Committee has done a phenomenal job planning great events throughout the remainder of this week. We encourage you to stop by the table and sign the Diversity Pledge and to receive a t-shirt, everyone's looking for some swag, uh, and support the remainder of their events this week. This is also the first in the series of events addressing sexual harassment in the workplace, and we hope that this conversation will lay the foundation for upcoming events in the weeks to follow. Over the past couple of months, Me Too has overwhelmed the news cycle and our daily conversations. What started as a hashtag has become a powerful movement, forcing society to grapple with prevalence of sexual harassment and sexual assault in society. In an op-ed published yesterday in the New York Times, feminist legal scholar and University of Michigan School of Law, Professor Catherine McKinnon said, in many ways, that the Me Too movement has accomplished what the law could not, by making untenable the assumption that one who reports sexual abuse is lying. Although she credits sexual harassment law with preparing the ground, she believes today's movement is shifting gender hierarchies to tonic plates. Today, we hope to explore that foundation and discuss what will come next as a consequence of the Me Too movement. With us today are Professors George Rutherglen, Kim Prezan, and Anne Coughlin. Professor Rutherglen will speak to the origins of the law of sexual harassment and the current state of the law. Professor Prezan will offer her thoughts on the intersection of sexual misconduct and the criminal law, as well as offer thoughts for solutions outside of the criminal law. And Professor Coughlin will put the Me Too movement in context with other feminist movements and offer her perspective on what changes our law and society might see in response. Please join me in welcoming the panel. And Professor Rutherglen, whenever you're ready. The origins of sexual harassment law really begin with Catherine McKinnon. She was a tireless advocate for it, and she's now lived to see uh, her views move from an academic and an advocacy proposal to our understanding of how we can improve uh, relations among people, uh, both in the workplace and in colleges and universities. The important point to understand about sexual harassment is that it's far broader uh, than the law of sexual assault and criminal law. In order to make out a claim of sexual harassment, there's no need to show lack of consent. You just have to show that the uh, attention uh, was, was unwelcome. You don't have to show physical contact or the threat of physical contact. Basically, all you need to show is that the conduct was severe or pervasive. This applies both in the workplace under Title VII and in colleges and universities under Title IX. Because of the breadth of the law of sexual harassment, there have been continuing problems in trying to figure out exactly what is permitted and what is prohibited. And that, in turn, has led to the very severe enforcement problems uh, that we see. Um, victims of sexual harassment are not inclined to uh, go public because their credibility will be challenged. Um, 
to the extent that formal accusations are made, there is a very strong argument that the accused has the right to confront the evidence and to confront the accuser. Failure to observe those sort of common procedural steps really prevents uh, effective condemnation. And there have been lawsuits around the country uh, brought by accused students who claim that they have been unfairly charged. On the other hand, no one really wants to get up and testify under oath subject to cross-examination about their private sexual life. And that's what dissuades people from coming forward. I think it's a, a very severe problem. Um, and the dynamics of the Me Too movement alleviate it somewhat, but I don't think they eliminate it. In fact, they show exactly what the problem is, that a single person who gets up and complains about sexual harassment might well not be believed at great personal cost. Five, six people get up and complain about sexual harassment by the same individual, the credibility problem seems to drift into their favor. So I think there are intense problems uh, with enforcement. and. Uh, I think the law has to address it in a much more uh, thorough fashion uh, than it does. I, I just don't think it's enough to say unwelcome attention that is severe or pervasive is prohibited. And it's too vague a standard. It requires too fact-intensive an inquiry. It imposes too many costs on people who want to make the accusation. So I think, and I, I believe it, uh, Ann Coughlin's made this point before. I, I think we should really have a set of rules that are not focused on individual interactions. That instead, try to prevent the situations from arising at all. So here at the University of Virginia, romantic relationships between people in power, say professors, and people out of power, students, are just forbidden. I, I think that's the right approach to take. Um, because it prevents the situation from arising in the first place. Anne has, at least in the past, proposed that there uh, be rules that try to eliminate drinking and sexual contact among students. I think that's the correct approach. You can tell how that, were, that went. <laughs> but I think it's the right idea, uh, is that we need rules uh, that are broader than a prohibition against sexual harassment just to prevent the most egregious examples from occurring. Because the existing standard is just not one that invites people uh, regularly uh, to come forward. Um, that's all I have to say. Now for the microphone to Kim. <laughs> uh, good morning. So I want to say a couple things just to put the sort of criminal law question in context. And then I'll probably talk about a couple of the uh, draft sexual assault model penal code provisions and just sort of let you know where things stand now. Uh, so I want you to think before we get to the question of the Me Too movement about what you think about the criminal justice system. My bet is that outside of this particular context, you think that there's over-criminalization, over-incarceration, 
uh, discriminatory and disproportionate enforcement against the poor and people of color, that there's different access to good lawyers. Uh, you might have even in one of your classes read a paper about whether good people can be prosecutors. Can you be a good person and be a prosecutor? And an important thing to keep in mind as we address the Me Too movement is that these problems don't go away just because we're dealing with rape, right? So if you are inviting criminal law into a social problem, if you are asking criminal law to deal with a social problem, the criminal law is coming in warts and all. Even at its best, of course, what we do in the criminal law is currently to put people in cages, even when they deserve it. We are putting people in cages. We are condemning them. We are potentially subjecting them to reporting requirements for life. Uh, we are potentially imposing other collateral consequences on them. And so it is really important when we think about something like the Me Too movement that we're careful to parse the different kinds of conduct that we're talking about. We're talking about everything from sexual harassment to rape, from boorish behavior to cr crimes. And we need to really take a perspective on this about when should the criminal law be involved? When should the law be involved? And when, in fact, do we have broader social problems that, in fact, we need to sort out and figure out even before the law gets uh, involved, right? So if we have a problem with college drinking and sex, uh, how do we solve the college drinking problem, right? So a lot of this is figuring out where exactly we can and should intervene. And, and my, my point here is just that we need to, when we think about the criminal law, it's really easy to think criminal law has got the very big stick. This is sometimes behavior that's incredibly problematic. Let's rush to the criminal justice system. And I think we need to pause and be very careful as we do so. Now, even trying to offer that kind of nuance, I'm leaving some things out. So one thing that happens in our discussions about the model penal code is that people talk about overcriminalization, and then people say, well, wait a minute, the other side says, sexual assault has been radically undercriminalized, so you can't complain that we're adding criminal laws. That's the entire point here. We should be adding criminal laws. And then the other side says something like, but just be careful about who's going to be the person who winds up pleading guilty to these criminal laws, right? Brock Turner's going to be Brock Turner under every criminal justice system. Who's the person who actually winds up spending time in jail? Uh, but the most interesting voice that I've heard recently is the question of who are the victims who actually aren't seeing their cases pursued? And the people who are the victims who aren't seeing their cases pursued are most frequently women of color. And so as we think about these things, we really have to think more in a more sort of fine-grained way about who our potential defendants are and who our potential victims are. When you think about women 18 to 24, you probably think about campus rape. But women who are 18 to 24 and are not enrolled in college are more likely to be raped than women who uh, are in college. So as we do this, we need to think both about what the really paradigmatic case is, right? It can't just be the narrative or the trope that's currently in our head, what happened to Uma Thurman and we got to read yesterday, but really what the, the rather complicated landscape is. And we have to think about who's going to be included within our periphery as we think about these things. So uh, one criminal law scholar, Bennett Capers, talks about how uh, we haven't been paying enough attention both to the range of potential victims, whether it's to women of color or men who, in fact, wind up being eliminated from some of these conversations. And so 
our job, I think, as lawyers is to think about these things in a much more nuanced way. I'm a retributivist, in case you haven't heard that. Uh, I'm a huge fan of punishing people who deserve it. Uh, and so, of course, I'm, I'm all on board for the uh, criminal law being expanded in certain areas in sexual assault. But I think we need to be careful about when it's necessary, when people are deserving, and, in fact, what is proportionate. So... As you may have heard in your criminal law classes, uh, the American Law Institute is trying to refine the Model Penal Code sexual, um, sexual assault provisions. Uh, I think it's sometimes hard for students to sort of get a handle on what's going on here. Obviously, originally, the Model Penal Code was a huge reform effort, right? All the states were a mess, every, and this was, in fact, you know, a gold standard that you were trying to convince states to sort of live up to. Uh, but when it comes to sexual assault, the problem is that the Model Penal Code's provisions are so outdated uh, that it's really a black eye on the, you know, the American Law Institute. And here, we're more playing catch-up than being, the, in some ways, the model code, right? Actually, the 50 states are ahead of the Model Penal Code in what they criminalize. And so one thing that you see is this tension among people as they think about this reform effort about whether it's more of a restatement, what are the states currently doing, or in fact whether it's trying to push the ball forward in ways that the states have not in fact uh, addressed right now. So two things I think that um, are currently going on in terms of the Model Penal Code revisions uh, that might be of interest to this discussion uh, are the sexual contact provisions and the coercion uh, provisions. And I should say this is all very much in flux. I'm dealing with the latest draft from December of 2017. I can tell you there's a provision in there. I went to open it up expecting to see what I had seen before, and they've changed the coercion provision. So these are things that, in fact, have not been improved by the American Law Institute, and it's not quite clear where things are going to, in fact, wind up. These questions are incredibly uh, contentious. So let me start with um, the sexual contact stuff. So there are obviously a range of unwanted touchings that occur, and the question is when the criminal law uh, ought to intervene. Uh, what the ALI is looking at here are misdemeanors unless there's some sort of force. Uh, but it has two provisions to it. One is that it's got to be certain kinds of body parts, and then it's got to be with an intention to have uh, sort of sexual arousal, gratification, or abuse. So when you think about the, the lay of the land here, you can have things that count as this kind of misdemeanor or sexual contact. You're going to have some things that just count as assault, although under the model penal code, you have to have injury. Otherwise, it's not an assault. Or you're going to have things that are sort of the province of tort law and fall outside of it. And so one thing that winds up being very difficult is asking, when are we putting people in jail for this kind of touching? When are we, in fact, and, and labeling it a sex crime? When are we saying you should go to jail but it's not a sex crime? And when, in fact, are we saying tort law uh, should, uh, should step in? So this two-pronged way of thinking about both body parts and intention uh, is, in fact, apparently the view of most states, um, according to the reporters. And so one thing, then, that's interesting is what potentially gets left out and why. So touching of body parts without sexual intent doesn't uh, fall, then, into this crime. Why doesn't it? I think the worry here is that, in fact, the tailor that... Uh, 
unintentionally or necessarily has to touch someone's groin as they're measuring pants shouldn't be seen as uh, engaging in some sort of crime. Uh, they actually include the, the standard coach who pats the players on the rear. I mean, I've actually seen that at the most recent basketball game I uh, went to uh, that my kid was participating in. So the question is, if you have those kind of contacts without any kind of uh, sexual intent, should this in fact be within the criminal law or should we just be dealing with potentially offensive contact, maybe offensive, depending on your reasonableness test under tort law? I think the harder question is, what do you do about the just intent cases where it's not a sexual part? What do you do when you find out that the, sh the shoe salesman actually has a foot fetish and is incredibly sexually aroused every time they put shoes on your feet? Uh, what do you do with the person who ran the Boston Marathon and just went up to a spectator and kissed that person? Lips aren't int intimate parts. They don't count. Uh, the reporters go so far as to say if somebody licks the back of your neck, that's actually going to be outside of the model penal code because it's not an intimate part and there's no injury. So, you know, I, you guys are all cringing. Yeah, it's a gross example. Nobody likes the idea that somebody else could come up to you and lick the back of your neck. And so then the question becomes, where does this fall? If this is icky conduct, and I actually think we all agree, the law should intervene in this kind of icky conduct, where is this? So one argument might be we actually need a broader view of what kinds of offensive contacts should be criminalized under the model penal code. Or a different argument is every time somebody has a sexual uh, intention, that should be good enough. I think as you ask that last question, should any kind of touching where the person has a sexual intention be good enough? You should remember where we started and the kinds of questions we have with something like attempts. So if you remember uh, inherently impossible attempts or, or legally impossible attempts where the person shoots at a tree and you say, yeah, but that person thought it was a person so they should go to jail uh, for attempted murder. One of our worries was that conduct that looks completely innocuous can be criminalized as soon as we can attribute a mental state to somebody. And one of the worries then was, against whom do we decide we're attributing mental states and when don't we? So if we have something that actually doesn't look like a sexual touching and then we're just saying, but we know what was going on in your mind, we sometimes worry about how enforcement works with that. That's why some of our uh, attempt statutes like at least a dose of their mens rea in their actus reus formulations is to corroborate the mens rea. I'm enough of a mens rea person, I like it in theory, uh, but we, I think we do have to worry as the criminal law exists in practice. Just briefly on coercion, uh, coercion for a very long period of time, particularly under the model penal code, required a threat of force. That means that the person who's threatened with losing their job unless they have sex with their supervisor was not going to be covered by the criminal law. Now. Originally, and that's why I'm surprised with where this particular draft is, what they tried to do was create specific bright line rules instead of sort of a person of reasonable firmness. So the high school principal who tells the girl in Montana, you don't get to graduate unless you have sex with me, because in fact that was for an official act that was clearly going to be sexual assault. They have recently added, actually, that other threats to which a person sort of of ordinary sensibilities would succumb are also going to count. That means it will ultimately, under this current draft, 
be a jury question whether somebody who's working in a job and is told they'll be fired unless they have sex with their boss, whether that winds up being a crime or not, will probably depend on that person's financial situation, what other jobs were available, uh, whether it was as easy as to say, screw you and walk out, or whether the person uh, was in fact going to uh, really be financially damaged in a very significant way. It's a jury question then, whether we like it being a jury question, how we figure out the contours and guidance for the jury are of course difficult questions. But that's at least where the model penal code is trying to go and I think the questions that in fact are most likely to intersect with the Me Too movement. So again, I'm broadly in favor of, of punishing people when they deserve it. Uh, and I do believe that our current laws, and particularly the model penal code, undercriminalize. But I think that as we do this, we need to do this with our eyes wide open about what the actual impacts are going to be as we unleash the criminal law into another area and be careful about what those actual impacts look like. So thank you. So I think my um, assignment is to try to put the Me Too movement into some sort of historical perspective. And of course, that's virtually impossible or actually literally impossible to do in, in five or ten minutes. So I'm going to share a few thoughts along those lines. Um, the first thing that I want to do is to give a shout out to my current seminar. I'm teaching a seminar titled Feminism in Practice. And we are approaching the creation and the work that we do from a feminist uh, standpoint. That is, we're working collectively to develop what our readings will be, the issues we care about, and we're hoping to write our own manifesto. And it won't be Anne Coughlin, it will be the class. And so I'm speaking, I'm going to share with you some of the, the insights that we've gained from our earliest units, because of course, as you can imagine, this is a thing, the Me Too movement. I don't know what it will look like historically when we look back 50 years or 100 years. Will this be a footnote? Will it be something much larger? Um, I think it's going to be a, a significant moment in the history of the women's movement. Um, we tend to speak about the women's movement, the feminist movement, as if it has occurred and is occurring in, in different waves. And I'm sure you hear that. Um, and I would urge you to sort of set that thinking aside, at least for now. It might be useful at some points to be thinking first wave, second wave, third wave. Um, but instead, what I'm going to try to do is to focus on the Me Too movement as presenting a problem that has been present for women um, perhaps forever, and then also uh, certainly has been a, a big piece of what we now think of as the feminist movement. And that is the ability of women to have a public voice, for women to be able to speak authoritatively in the public sphere, including especially um, politics, the political realm, um, but also in other really important public institutions. Think uh, employment, uh, think education, think churches, think all the, the big important public spaces. So one of the things we're doing in our class together, and I'm, I'm hoping that the students will agree with me when I say that I think this has been useful, is we looked at a book that was very recently published by a classics professor. And she's also a philosopher. And it's a very brief book that talks about women and power. 
And she points out that when you go back in the Western classical tradition, women have always been cast as the people who do not have the authority to speak in public. And there's all kinds of methods that are taken to silence them deliberately. Um, one that's interesting here, and I'll come back around to it in a minute, is that women were allowed, and, and again, of course, I'm talking about a literary tradition, um, which has shaped our cultural consciousness. These aren't necessarily true historical cases. Um, but what she points out is that there were a few places where women were allowed to talk. Sound familiar? Women are allowed to talk about women's issues, but they don't have the authority to speak for human beings in general. We only get to talk about stuff that matters to women, and that's typically pretty narrow. Um, things that are really important, family, children, um, the domestic sphere, where, where most of us think we would like to spend a bunch of time and it matters a great deal to, to the, 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 the species. Um, but women were allowed to talk about rape. When they did, it was very common in the literature for them to immediately have their tongues cut off. So they were allowed to speak, but then they're instantly silenced and silenced forever. Now they found ways of resisting and they would create artworks, tapestries that would reveal the truth of what had occurred. And again, I know that this is a terribly violent image, but it's an interesting one because it's one that I'm looking to, to think about what are the contemporary examples of silencing? Obviously, they're not literally cutting off our tongues, but what are the contemporary examples of silencing? Can we find ways to enlist law to help women's voices be more authoritative? So we're allowed to speak on women's issues. That continues to be the case, but there is hostility towards us speaking more generally. The Me Too movement is great, but notice the assumption seems to be this is a problem for women. Um, this is not a problem for men, even though everything that involves women, by definition, necessarily touches on the definition and destinies that are available to men. So we're still talking about women's issues, but it's amazing to see this outpouring of voices. Though I agree with George, these were powerful women and there were lots and lots of them, right? It took that kind of a um, a moment and then lots of journalistic digging. These people didn't come forward happily to report. Um, there was a lot of fear. So the other thing that I wanted to mention that's been very striking to me about the Me Too movement is the familiar nature of the silencing that goes on. So the next book we read in feminist, uh, our Feminism in Practice class, see a theme here? I'm pitching my class. Um, <laughs> was to focus on the, one of the most eloquent statements of feminist theory, which is John Stuart Mill. Think about the important roles that men play in feminism. There you have a great example. So he focuses on formal equality and the way in which law at that time um, forbade women to enter certain, many professions. You know, women belonged in the home, nowhere else. The law formally endorsed uh, this idea and kept women out of the public sphere almost altogether. The thing we were supposed to do at that time was to get married. And he seemed to think that if we got rid of formal barriers, allow women to enter the workforce, and also reformed marriage so that marriage was egalitarian, we would solve the problem. And what was striking to me was noticing the ways in which the women who came forward in Me Too were 
alluding to, citing some of the very examples in their work arrangements that were very similar to the oppressive things about marriage in John Stuart Mill's day. So Mill says it's very important for women, I mean, very difficult rather for women to step up and complain about ill usage by their husbands because they owe everything to their husbands, their whole livelihood, their ability to succeed in the world, their identity, their happiness, everything is in the hand of an individual man. And you notice the structure of the Me Too complaints. Marriage may, well, I'm not saying marriage is egalitarian, that's not my theme. Um, marriage may be more egalitarian, but notice women are still held thrall in these, to these economic arrangements, at least in certain occupations. And if you've been listening to the radio, it's not just Hollywood actresses, it's also the women who clean, uh, uh, women who are uh, janitorial staff in Los Angeles. There's been an incredible NPR story about how those women are sexually assaulted, abused, harassed, and no one listens. Um, so, so in any event, it's that economic uh, disempowerment that Mill thought Oh, almost you know, well over 100 years ago, fixed marriage, let women get their own property and let them enter the public sphere and these problems will begin to disappear and of course they erupt in yet a different way. Um, so the last thing that I'm going to say is, oh, Kim and I have a lot to talk about but I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> not, 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 not quite yet. Oh, but I will allude to it in my list. So what I've been thinking about is this terrible metaphor that I've come up with but that you can see I really like what are the contemporary ways in which we are cutting off women's tongues, in which we are disabling them from speech in the particular moment uh, or, or, or speaking generally? Um, and, and one way that happens, some of these are cultural ways. I'm going to allude to some of the cultural ways first and then get into some of the perhaps legal ones. One question that gets asked of me all the time um, because, yeah, I, I've been that person here at UVA who gets asked this question. Um, when there's something going on in the world like the Me Too movement, and there have been other chapters like that in the not-too-recent past, colleagues will come up and say to me, why are the women so angry? <sighs> you know, and I immediately go, whoa. You know, I mean, so just being told you're angry, being characterized as, as somehow, you know, whining or being shrewish, you know, as opposed to being assertive or making important points or what can we do to help. And I always find myself saying, because no one listens to, to them or to us. So why are we so angry is the one, the one question um, that, that I think works. Um, the other thing, of course, that we see going on in contemporary culture is the terrible trolling that goes on. Um, and I know that it happens to everyone, but if a woman complains about something, and it's not just about a Me Too kind of thing, it's the piling on in social media. And I, I can't use those words here, but they obviously have the ability to shut people down completely and to just go away and not speak anymore. Um, so there's that. And you can think of other kinds of things. Um, but I, I wanted to mention a couple of points that came up here. Um, so one is, George alluded to the common procedural steps and how the fact that we have these common procedural steps that everyone agrees are sort of universally just and we have to make them available to the accused in these cases in precisely the same form as they are in other kinds of cases. Those common procedural steps cut out our tongues. We're not allowed to speak 
easily or at all? And why would we think that, that those common procedural steps are any good in general if they're bad for women and other victims in these cases? So there, there's my question for that. Another thing that I noticed in the Nasser case I mean, you've been following that case. I mean, it's literally unbelievable. And I don't want to burst into tears of rage right now, but that's how I feel. But when the women finally came forward and complained, the FBI told them to wait and don't talk to anyone about it. Don't say anything. Like, why? Why do you have to wait and be quiet? Do you, do you know what I mean? So the criminal investigation somehow said to them, we, we can't talk to you. Um, why would that be? Uh, then the non-disclosure agreements. What's that about? That's cutting off people's tongues. You know? And thank goodness in the Me Too movement, some of the women have said, oh, oh, I'm going to take your money, and I'm going to talk anyway. Go ahead and sue me. I mean, it's just, it's so, so I mean, these non-disclosure agreements, I realize it's done everywhere, but what's up with that? Um, I shall go on. Um, <laughs> the last thing that I want to say is that there's this notion, and this is where I'm hoping the Me Too movement will make a difference, it's certainly making a difference for me, that there's things that we just shouldn't talk about. George mentioned, alluded to the common procedural steps, and also alluded to the fact that it's very difficult to talk in public about sex. Whose interests are served by norms of civility that say it's hard to talk about rape? Who's, I mean, let me be clear, it's, it's clear. So I once used the F word in a piece that I wrote. I was so excited. Um, and I had colleagues come into my office and go, civility, Anne, civility. And I'm thinking, what? Whose civility norms are these? Whose interests are served, right, by telling a woman or a man that there's something gross or unseemly about you getting on the stand and telling people exactly what happened to you, that someone raped you. And so, yeah, those, I think, are some contemporary examples. They're cultural, legal, altogether. I have no idea what difference law can make, but I know that my feminism and practice students are going to come up with some suggestions mm -hmm. for all of us. Thank you. All right, thank you everyone for your initial comments. We'll have a couple minutes of guided discussion and then I'll open it up to the audience for your questions. And so definitely be thinking about what you'd like to ask. And along with that, please remember that the professors with us are mandatory reporters. And so if you have specific questions, please phrase them generally or refrain from asking for, for specifics. Um, yeah, but on that same front, if you have complaints about the mandatory reporting rules, um, come talk to us about them. <laughs> Back. Because we both hate, we may not agree on many things, but we completely agree that they're terrible. Rules. Well, we, we, we think that there's the core of them is good, but that, that, that they're, they've gone, they're an overreach. Because they end up silencing y'all. Yeah, well, right, yeah, so no, 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 we, sorry, well, no, 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 so we believe that the mandatory reporter rules in general are a good public policy. I think our concern is that as women who teach sexual assault, we want to be able to have open door policies and we can't have those without being forced to then tell uh, 
uh, tell main grounds about things that are disclosed to us. And so we want an exception for us not to say that uh, everyone should, that there shouldn't be any mandatory reporting. And it's not an exception for Kim and Anne. It's it an is. Ac- <laughs> it's an academic setting of exemption. Some universities do this, that, that there's a, a, there can be a space in certain classes where these things come up that you can, you can have some discretion. Yeah. But it's the Ann and Kim exemption. That's right. The University of Oregon this past year did adopt some sort of grading principle where there were certain professors or certain administrators who were exempt from the mandatory reporting requirements. Would you like to see more universities trend in that way? Do you think that will be effective? It's really, really tough. The, 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 the thing that we face now, I think, ends, or the, the nature of the requirements now is such that it almost functions as another, in my view, silencing technique. Because I was told by Sarah Davies the other day that our rules are being construed to require reporting of what's called catcalling. Now, I haven't yet discussed catcalling or street harassment with my students, so I'm not sure what the appropriate approach is. But the idea is that it's so broad that it ends up stifling our ability to talk about lots and lots of things. Um, The other thing that I believe from my interactions with all of you over the years is that it's possible there should be a different rule for graduate students than there is for undergrads. And with all due respect to undergrads, they are younger. Um, and most of you have already made the decision that you're moving into a profession and you're, you've got a lot of uh, concerns and questions in mind. So the students that have come to me over the years frequently are, say things like, look, I already have a therapist or I don't need a therapist. What I want is legal advice from you. I want you as someone who's an expert before I decide to report to talk to me about what's going to happen. And that's something that I can't do anymore. So I feel as though, and, and again, I don't know if the line is between graduate and undergraduate, but it's been, it's been rough. Yeah. All right. So um, all of you mentioned in your comments that um, women were not being heard, in particular women of color. And time's up. Um, some of you hinted that the women in Hollywood are really rallying behind this cause and trying to provide legal services. Do you think those efforts through the Times Up Legal Defense Fund will be effective, or what steps do you think will be necessary in order to make that effective? Well, I, th- I think there's a big problem, as I said in my introductory remarks. And <clears throat> Kim can look at the problem from the point of view of prosecutorial discretion. I look at it. What kind of case is a lawyer going to make? You know, there's just huge selection effects. You know, the sexual harassment cases that lawyers are going to take are going to be either highly visible, uh, ironclad evidence, uh, a real uh, chance to leverage a good settlement fairly quickly. that leaves out just a lot of cases. It's only the very strongest allegations that are likely to attract uh, an attorney who does this for a living, or even an attorney who works for a public interest group. I mean, you know, they want to make an impact. You know, they can't handle all the cases that are out there. So what you see is that the whole process of enforcement is going to move to the really bad cases. I, I mean, look, it's better than nothing, but 
don't think of this as systematic regulation of the problem. It, it just means we're only looking directly at the tip of the iceberg. Following up on some of the remarks that Professor Coughlin made, um, she talked about the use of non-disclosure agreements in some of these settlement cases. Um, what should we do to revisit that practice? Is there any way, do we need to fully eradicate it? Do we feel as though those agreements are unconscionable in certain respects? Well, they're pretty common throughout civil litigation. So, I have a case against public officials in the state of Virginia. We're bound to destroy the evidence once the case is over, unless it enters into the court record. So, you see them everywhere. And they are in the interests of the defendants, but, you know, it does lead to pretty bad pathologies. I mean, just look at garden variety mass torts. You know, you don't have to disclose that there's a problem with your automobile that you manufacture. And then, <laughs> there are more of those cars out there. There are more accidents. So, it's a systematic problem that goes way beyond sexual harassment and sexual assault. And we, we should be, you know, there's, we, we should have the public interest in mind with respect to non-disclosure agreements. By and large, we don't. Yeah, partly it's because, to pick up on Ann's comment, you have a non-disclosure agreement, it silences anybody to complain about the non-disclosure agreement. So it just disappears invisibly below the radar. So it's, it's a serious problem everywhere. Professor Frizan mentioned um, the use of the reasonable person, and in particular in the coercion provisions that have been proposed uh, by the MPC. What are your thoughts on varying the reasonable person standard, um, either in accordance with the violation at issue or taking into account a more fact-intensive inquiry in these cases? You go ahead, Kim. <laughs> so, so just to be clear, the test is making any threat that would cause submission to or engagement in such act by any individual of ordinary resolution in that person's situation under all the circumstances as that person believes them to be. Um, so I think it's funny that Anne kicked this question to me because I generally despise reasonable person tests and I think that she they don't actually them. make any sense and I don't know how you decide which facts of the defendant or of the victim you include and which ones you don't. And so, you know, between subjectivizing all the way and not subjectivizing at all, I worry that there's no principled way to do that. I do think that the reasonable person test in terms of coercion is really meant to test something else, which is sort of the nature of the threat. Like, when is the threat really significant? So it's not the kind of typical negligence test, which I think doesn't make any sense at all, but really something about, given the facts and circumstances, is this the kind of threat that counts as undermining someone's will? And it's really hard to come up with any sort of really objective criteria to get at that other than that kind of sort of mushy standard. Um, of course, the situation is going to matter to what the person is giving into and why. Uh, but in general, you know, I think reasonable person tests are terrible. So. Do you think it just comes down to the jury decides? Well, so the jury decides, but I think we want to, it's, it's really a normative question that the jury is deciding, right, which is, when is this the kind of threat that we want to call sexual assault? When is giving in, into this bad enough? 